0: So Acts chapter 7, we're looking at verses 54, then into chapter 8, verse 4, and that's around page 780 in most of your Bibles in the seats if you're using those Bibles. I want to invite you to imagine with me if our elders, if the leaders of our church made a proposal at our next forum, our next congregational business meeting as a church, the elders had become aware of a community of Muslim immigrants in New Jersey. And some of them were legal, some of them were undocumented. A number of them were hostile to America. And among this community, there were some affiliated with ISIS with terrorist leanings. And as elders, we were proposing that CBC begin a major outreach to this community. And we wanted to know if you would vote to support this endeavor. Before asking you to vote, however, being responsible leaders as we are, we were honest with you about what the cost would be. Here's what we anticipated the cost would be for our church. Likely at least one of our elders would die in the process. Many of you would be thrown in prison. Many more of you would be scattered throughout New Jersey and other places leaving behind your homes, your jobs, and some of your family. In fact, CBC would be gutted of a large number of our congregation. And all of this would be the result of undertaking uh, to reach this immigrant community. So question, would you vote for it? Would I vote for it? Well, this is exactly the sort of thing that that happens to uh, the early community of believers in today 's story, except they don 't get to vote for it yes. <laughs> let 's remember this story. It begins with Stephen, one of the large uh, or sorry one of uh, the key leaders of the Jerusalem Church. Stephen is one of the seven that the church chose, and that the apostles commissioned to oversee the church's support of needy widows and and Stephen we saw last week has given a powerful speech before the Sanhedrin the ruling uh, religious council in Jerusalem and he's ended it by berating and chastising those who were to be his judges who had the power to punish him listen to it again we we read this last week beginning in verse 51 of chapter 7 You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Would you have advised Stephen against ending on such a note? <laughs> totally ticking off these powerful rulers, lambasting them, telling them they never listened to God's voice? Well, how did they respond in verse 54? When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him, my translation says. This is the same way the Sanhedrin had responded before, if you remember back in the story, when Stephen had, or sorry, Peter had been before them and had spoken boldly before them. That time, the result had been that the Sanhedrin had warned Peter and the apostles, had flogged them, and then had let them go. This time, things turn out differently. Partly because of what happens next. At, at this moment... Stephen has a vision. God appears, or rather God opens Stephen's eyes to to something beyond what our human eyes are normally able to see. Verses 55 to 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen sees the glory of God and sees Jesus alive, vindicated, powerful. And Stephen can't help himself. He tells the Sanhedrin what he sees. Look, he says, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, to understand just how much these were fighting words, we have to understand where these words come from and what they mean, particularly this phrase, Son of Man this is from daniel 7 there's a there's a vision there in daniel 7 where four powerful frightening and evil beasts are oppressing god's people but then god sits in heavenly court and one like a son of man comes into god's presence and the divine court decides in favor of the son of man and condemns and destroys the beasts And so this is is courtroom language. It's judgment language where God is the judge and God decides who's condemned and who's vindicated. And Jesus uses this same language back in Luke chapter 22, verse 69, when he was tried before the same hand Sanhedrin. And Jesus said, from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And right there for Jesus, they had condemned Jesus for blasphemy because he was claiming to be the son of man. And if he was claiming to be the son of man, then what, was, what did that make them who were opposing him? That made them the evil, terrible beasts who opposed God and God's people. And so this is a sore spot for the Sanhedrin. And here Stephen brings it up again. Same thing, I see Jesus looking like a son of man at the right hand of God. So how do they respond, this elite, honorable court of religious leaders? Verse 57, at this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Boy, they are triggered. They're covering their ears. They don't want to hear anything else. Stephen has accused them of refusing to listen to God's voice, of having uncircumcised ears, and now they prove it, literally, physically, covering their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, la, 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 we're not listening. All pretense of of trial, of justice is now over, and they rush at Stephen in mob violence to lynch him. Capital punishment was not something they actually have the legal authority from their Roman overlords to do, but they do it anyway, outside of the law. So question. The apostles had also made the Sanhedrin furious, but the apostles had survived. Why does Stephen die? And why does God give Stephen a vision of glory, of heaven opened, and of the Son of Man? Could the Sanhedrin have seen this vision too if they'd only looked? Was it a last chance for the Sanhedrin to repent and to turn around? Or was the vision for Stephen only to strengthen him, to give him courage for what was about to happen? Or was God, through this vision, pushing Stephen into an experience that once he spoke about it, God knew would tip the Sanhedrin over the edge? We really don't know. We don't know um, why God does what he does. or, Or why God does it one way in one situation for one person and another way for someone else. But whatever the reason, Stephen is the first one since Jesus himself to push the Sanhedrin to the point of murder. The first one to pay the ultimate price for his witness, for his bold proclamation about jesus and stephen's not even one of the 12 apostles but the way luke describes this whole occurrence luke is intentionally making clear that stephen is like jesus he is like his lord look look at this like jesus stephen is tried before the sanhedrin like jesus stephen speaks of the son of man being glorified in heaven Like Jesus, in verse 59, Stephen, as he dies, prays, Lord, receive my spirit. And like Jesus, in verse 60, Stephen asks God to forgive those who are murdering him. An amazing correlation. Stephen is a lot like Jesus. He's a lot like his Lord, like his master. And he gives his life for Jesus. And he gives his life like Jesus did. And this tells us something important about discipleship, about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Well, tucked into this story in verse 58 is an interesting detail about this guy named Saul. Meanwhile, it says, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, the witnesses, the false witnesses, Luke told us earlier back in chapter 6, who, who had accused Stephen before the court of the Sanhedrin, they are now, they are stoning him. This was Old Testament law. Witnesses who accused someone of a capital crime had to be the first ones to throw the stones to execute the person. And these false witnesses, they're taking off their outer clothes, they're stripping down to stone Stephen, and they're laying their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now question, where have we heard this language before, to lay something at someone's feet? A few chapters earlier, right, various believers had sold property uh, for the poor, and they had laid the money at the feet of the apostles as a sign of respect toward their leadership. And here, ironically now, we see these false witnesses laying their garments at the feet of Saul. Suggesting indirectly, maybe uh, Luke is that Saul is someone they respect, perhaps their leader. Later we'll see that Saul is, in fact, a man of action and a man of initiative. He is a leader and and don't forget who got uh, or sorry, what got Stephen into trouble in the first place back in chapter six. He was arguing with some people from a synagogue synagogue of the freedmen, and Luke told us it was made up of those from, among other places, Cilicia and Asia. Well, guess where Saul's from? Saul's from Tarsus in Cilicia. So likely, Saul is from this synagogue that Stephen's been tangling with, and likely Saul is a leader and influencer in this synagogue. He certainly becomes a leader and an influencer as the story goes on. And here we see this young man, Saul, witnessing how Stephen dies. And we learn in chapter 8, verse 1, in case there was any doubt how Saul felt about Stephen's murder, Saul approved of their killing him. We're going to meet Saul again soon. Well, the story continues here in um, chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Likely, the apostles were able to stay because they were so respected and revered by all the people of Jerusalem because of all the miracles that they'd done. They they were well known in Jerusalem. and, And we saw earlier, the Sanhedrin was afraid to punish the apostles because of all the people and how popular the apostles were with them. But everyone else is scattered. The Jerusalem church is broken up. It's gutted. Of its membership. They're, they're fleeing for their lives. They're leaving homes and family and jobs. They're basically refugees. And, and interestingly, Luke tells us specifically that they scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. This phrase is, is important and interesting on two counts. First of all, because it's exactly where Jesus said, or, or sorry, what Jesus said should happen back in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, that verse is the outline of of the book of Acts. And and so let's recall it again. Jesus, back in Acts 1, uh, speaks these words to his first followers while he's still personally among them. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they have just reached finally the second stage in the fulfillment of what Jesus has told his followers to do, to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And what did it take for them to get there? To take this next step of obedience to the directives that Jesus gave them, not a missions conference, not a five-year strategic outreach plan. Not the hiring of an outreach pastor or the calling of missionaries. No, it took persecution. It took uh, a one of their leaders dying. It took them being scattered and fleeing for their lives. Well, we'll come back to this, this point. But, but first, the other interesting point about this phrase Judea and Samaria is why Luke would ever connect these two places together. Judea is the holy land. It's the the homeland of God's people. Samaria is a despised, hated place. Combining these two together, Judea and Samaria, it's like saying, you will be my witnesses in America and Iran, or in North Korea and South Korea. But Luke is all about tearing down our prejudices. Luke is all about saying, If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be part of God's mission, then you've got to learn to look at people differently. There aren't friends and enemies. There isn't us and them. There's just people. People who need to know Jesus. And you will be my witnesses to them. The ones you like, the ones you don't like. And so God uses this persecution to scatter his followers finally to the next frontier of the mission he's given them to Judea and to Samaria. And interestingly, it's not the apostles who go. Apostles mean literally sent ones, right? We've seen that. The apostles are the one who are sent on God's mission if anyone is sent. But these are the very ones who Luke specifically tells us do not go. Why? Because the mission isn't just the responsibility of the apostles. It's the responsibility of all God's people, all Jesus' disciples. And God is in charge of who he sends. So God is sending all of his people, all sorts of people. And especially we're going to see in the next chapter, God is going to use Philip, one of the seven Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews who, like Stephen, had been raised up beside the apostles who were Hebrew speaking. These new Greek speaking leaders who who are, are raised up and they become leaders in the early church. God doesn't do things the way we would do them. God doesn't even do things in Acts the way you'd expect them to happen as you're reading the book of Acts. There are surprising twists and turns as we go on. Well, meanwhile, Luke tells us in verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And this act was very risky because mourning was a public ritual in that culture. And the Jewish law specifically forbade the proper burial and mourning of those condemned for a capital crime like blasphemy, like Stephen was accused of. So this is a risk. These men are are standing against the religious establishment. They're identifying with Stephen, and they're identifying with Jesus. Then we read in verse 3, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Going from house to house, this is a reminder that these early believers met in homes when they weren't all gathered in public in the temple, and that's going to become less and less possible as the story goes on. So Paul's going to Saul, he'll later be called Paul, is going from house to house, dragging them away to prison. And Saul is zealous. Saul is aggressive. He, he's doing all he can to destroy those who follow Jesus. He arrests, Luke tells us, not only men, but also women, which is striking because normally persecution means going after the leaders. If you want to stamp out a movement, you can't get everyone. Remember, there are thousands of believers in Jerusalem by this time. So you go after the leaders. And so this means either that there are prominent women leaders among the believers at this time, or that Saul is so rabid in his opposition that he's going the extra mile. He's persecuting everyone he can, even the women. Just to finish off this passage, though, let's notice verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This word preached here is a a translation of a Greek word, uh, euangelizo, from which we get the word evangelize. It, It means to proclaim good news, to share good news. These early believers, not the apostles, but ordinary followers of Jesus are proclaiming the good news about Jesus wherever they are scattered. So question, if that proposal came to our congregational meeting to undertake an outreach to a group of people we might be afraid of, we might consider to be enemies, and if doing so would mean the murder of one of our leaders and the imprisonment of many others, both men and women, and the gutting of our church, as many of us are scattered from our homes, our jobs, our families, to other places... Would you vote for it? Would I vote for it? Evidently, Jesus would vote for it. And Jesus did. Jesus orchestrated it right here in the book of Acts. Catalyzed by Stephen's boldness. Exacerbated by Paul's zealous rage. This is how the mission of Jesus proceeds to its next stage. To the next level, which... Jesus said it should proceed to in Judea and Samaria. So what are we to make of this? What, what lesson or principle can we glean, glean from this passage, which is so unlike most of our experiences? Well, I'll tell you what, because Jesus said it many times um, in, in many different ways. One instance that comes to mind is in John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. How does God's mission progress? Jesus' followers give their lives. They, They lay down their lives. They die to themselves. And out of that death, new life, new multiplication takes place. Like a seed falling into the ground and dying, so our lives are to be. And the result is new fruit, new life, multiplication. So question for each one of us. How much do we value God's mission? Do we value it more than our comfort? Do we value it more than our life? More than our church? How much, what sort of cost are we willing to pay to see God's mission go forth? Are are we, like Stephen, a follower of Jesus? Does does our life, like his, look like Jesus' life? I'm going to invite the ushers to hand out a seed for you. To, to remind us of today's passage. It'll be an acorn. It's that time of year. And and as they do that, let me, let me tell you the story of a group of people whose lives looked a lot like Stephen's life and a lot like Jesus's life. They were one of the first group of, of missionaries in the modern Protestant missions movement. They were called the Moravians. And much of what I'm going to share with you is from the website of Christian History Institute about the, the history of the Moravians. This was in the early 1700s. And uh, a ragtag group of, of several hundred Christians from Moravia, which is part of present-day Czech Republic, they were on the run from religious persecution. They had the, four, the poor fortune of being fervent Protestants in what was then a strongly Catholic area. And so they were on the run, and they found refuge on the, the, a large estate, the estate of um, of a 22-year-old Christian aristocrat named Count Zinzendorf. Um, this was in northeastern Germany. It was in, on a place called Hernhut that, that Zinzendorf owned. And Zinzendorf had heard about their plight. He was a zealous, committed, young Christian man, and he opened his land to them, as a place where they could come and and squat and live on his land. Zinzendorf took a concern for them. He helped organize them into a simple village and into a religious community. But spiritually, things did not go well. There was bitterness among this group of people. They were constantly bickering and arguing among themselves, uh, and also arguing with a Protestant church nearby, which had different beliefs from their beliefs. Over time, this unforgiveness and this gossip and strife and division over petty things brought grief and discouragement to Zinzendorf. He thought, oh, why did I invite these people to come live on my land? He put up with them for five years, and then finally he'd had enough. And one day, he gathered the community together, and he preached at them for three hours on the importance of unity. And unlike most three-hour sermons, his, his words actually got through to them. The the people sorrowfully confessed their their past quarreling, and they promised to live in love and simplicity going forward. And and as a result of that, Herrenhut was transformed into a community working together in peace and love, and there was an eager anticipation of more that was to come. On August 5th, 1727, Zinzendorf and 14 of the Moravians spent the entire night in conversation and prayer. And on Sunday, August 10th, five days later, the visiting pastor of a nearby congregation, Pastor Rota was his name, was so overcome in the afternoon service at Hernhut by God's nearness that he threw himself on the ground and he called to God in repentance as he had never done before. The congregation was moved to tears and the service continued until midnight praising God and singing. You need a lot of God's presence for the the service to go till midnight. You just don't want to leave. The the next morning, Pastor Rota invited the Herrenhut community to a joint communion with his congregation on the following Wednesday evening. Count Zinzendorf visited every house in Herrenhut during those next few days, preparing them for the Lord's Supper with this other community. And and during that Wednesday night service, the Harrenhutters made many painful prayers for themselves and for others and for their continued unity. And the community united in fellowship fully. Count Zinzendorf looked upon that August 13th of 1727 as a day of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit upon the congregation. It was its Pentecost. Like the first Pentecost, men and women would move forth with the gospel from Harrenhut to the uttermost parts of the earth. Two weeks after the revival, 24 men and 24 women of the community covenanted together to take turns praying hour by hour around the clock for God's blessing on the congregation and for its missionary witness. For over 100 years, members of the Moravian Church continued nonstop, hour by hour, in this around-the-clock intercession. 100 years. All Moravian adventures were begun, surrounded, and consummated in prayer. They became known as God's happy people, and they launched a missionary movement in the days when missions was still almost unheard of among Protestants. Within 15 years of the revival, the Moravians at Harrenhut had established missions in the Virgin Islands, Greenland, Turkey, the Gold Coast of Africa, South Africa, and North America. And here are some of their accomplishments. And here's where we begin to see seeds falling into the ground to die and bringing great movement and fruit and life. A guy named Anthony, a former slave, came to speak at Harren Hut about the deplorable conditions of the slaves in the West Indies. And the night he spoke, two young Moravians could not sleep as they struggled with the sense that God was moving their hearts to Offer themselves to go and minister to those slaves. When they were told that perhaps the only way they could do this was to become slaves themselves, they said they were willing if that's what it would take. The first two Moravian missionaries, Leonard Dober and David Nitschmann, left Herrnhut on August twenty fifth, seventeen thirty two, to sail for Saint Thomas. And after that, other lands were studied, and more missionaries were sent. They went to the toughest places under the most severe conditions. For example, half of the first 18 to go with Dober, or after Dober and Nitschman to St. Thomas, half of them died within the first nine months. But the more that died, the more that volunteered to go to replace them. Within 25 years, more than 200 had gone out as missionaries from the small community to every continent of the world. Most were supported by the financial commitments of the several hundred who remained. Jesus said, when a seed falls into the ground and dies, it produces new life and fruit, far beyond all proportion to the size of the original seed. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Stephen. It happened to the Moravians and to many others down through history. What about us? As we close, I want to invite you to think about this seed, this acorn. I don't have one. I'll get one later, but you've got one. It's your life. It's our church. Like this acorn, it has the incredible potential to grow, to be fruitful, to be multiplied. But for this to happen, there's a dying That needs to take place. That dying looks a little different for each of us. For some of us, it might someday look literally like it looked for Stephen, where we give our lives for Jesus. For others of us, it happens more in our heart and in our lives as we surrender our will and our security and our comfort for what Jesus wants and for the joy that we can have in fully following him. So what will it look like for you? is the question I want to leave us with as we pray.